All right. We're not going to be using this chart much longer because we're on the bottom row. <laughs> we're going to do just one book, just Hebrews. Um, and I'll just mention that we've decided we're going to do Hebrews after we finish this study through the whole Bible. So and that's only three or four weeks from now. So this morning's survey of Hebrews will kind of count as an introduction for that study when we when we get to that. Ralph told me that um, he doesn't remember us studying Hebrews since he's been a Christian here. So that means maybe it's time. So. <laughs> Now, who wrote these two rows up here? Paul. Paul, that's right, yeah. And the Hebrew writer does not give his name. Uh, and I'll just, uh, I'm going to spend more time on this when, when we do the book in depth. Um, but I, I'll just mention a little bit at this point. Uh, hardly any one today who has studied the matter deeply believes that Paul wrote the book. Um, and, and I agree with him. I think the evidence is, is, is very strong that he did not write the book. Um, I'll just give you a couple of quick points on that. You, you may recall last week we did 2 Thessalonians. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul told them at the end of the book, he says, this is my signature. This is why I write in every letter I write. And he didn't do that in in this book. Um, so that's one. The fact that the book does not have his name is strong evidence that it's not him because he told the Thessalonians he always wrote his name at the end. <clears throat> the second one is in chapter 2. <coughs> um, in verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was that the first spoken to the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. That's being written from a standpoint that the writer is very clearly telling you he's not one of the twelve. And that's not a surprise. No one thinks he is. But he's telling us he's not one of the twelve. And that... He got what He knows from those people who were eyewitnesses because God testified uh, with them. Now, that is not the way Paul talked. Um, If you go back to Galatians, you'll find that that Paul said, I did not get my Gospel from the the apostles. I got it from Jesus Himself. Um, So you have these two. Now, there's a lot more evidence, but these two to me just by themselves would be sufficient to show that that could not have been the Apostle Paul writing this book. Um, But when I start the book itself, I'll I'll go into more detail and we'll look at some of the um, historically what the early writers said about it and, and other things like that. But this is just taking it right out of the book itself. Um. But the book had to have been written um, at least in the first century. I understand that you know, as Christians today, we, we would not doubt that. But um, as soon as we say, well, it wasn't written by Paul, then you know, that, that could leave it wide open. But 
The book was was actually quoted fairly extensively by Clement when he wrote the letter called First Clement. Now, and we talked about that um, back when we were doing, um, I forget whether it's Philippians or Colossians. Some One of those actually mentioned a guy named Clement and uh, he was at Corinth. Uh, I may, may be mistaken on that, but he was one of Paul's co-workers. And... Um, he apparently was the same one who later on was in Rome, one of the elders of the church, and wrote a letter to Corinth that we call First Clement. And in that book, he, he quoted from Hebrews several times. He didn't say it was the book of Hebrews. In fact, I'm not even sure whether the book had a name back then. Um, but uh, that's and, and everyone agrees that he wrote no later than 96 A.D. Could have been quite a bit earlier, but definitely by 96 A.D. So... The book of Hebrews had to have been written in the first century so that it's just like what the author is saying here. He got it from the eyewitnesses um, and, and the people he's writing to as well. They got it from the, the eyewitnesses. Alright, so that's enough for a quick introduction. Here's the outline. and The primary point in the outline is Christ is superior. We see he he has a superior revelation, he's superior over angels, over Moses, over the Aaronic priests, he has a superior sacrifice. And then we have a couple of chapters of you know on faith and, and um, related issues and just some practical matters at the very end. So we'll start with the first four verses, Christ's superior revelation, and I've also got chapter headings, so um, in the first couple verses, the writer starts, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Now, how does that make Christ superior? What's, what's in these verses that would make Christ superior? Linda? Yes. All right. That's good. Yeah. He made the world. And he made the world. Yeah. That's a, that's an issue. Another issue that that we th- I think we should pay attention to is that prior to Jesus, God spoke in many ways. That's what he's saying in verse one. But once Jesus came along, it was it was all concentrated into one. So he has a, a very superior revelation. Everything is coming from Jesus now. Alright, then um, in verse 4, it says, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now that leads us into the, the second point on our outline that Christ is superior over angels. Um, and So he says in verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now you recall, in the Old Testament, God gave various revelations through angels. Um, angels appeared to Abraham. A- angels um, appeared to some of the prophets like like Daniel. Um, angels appeared to, to um, uh, some of the people in the book of Judges. Um, 
so that the Old Testament could be considered a time of where the things were revealed by angels. And you recall even you had an angel appear to John the, ba- John the Baptist's father. And angels appeared at Christ's birth. But Jesus was far greater than any of the angels. So He, he says, to which of the angels did He ever say, You are My Son, that I have begotten you? What book is He quoting that from? From the book of Psalms, yes. Um, he does a lot of quoting from Psalms. He quotes from a few other books, but, but uh, Psalms is major in, in the book of Hebrews. Um, we have to understand that the people this, this preacher is writing to apparently were, were themselves Jews. Now, I used to think that, well, he must have been writing to Jews in Jerusalem or Judea, but um, I think that's unlikely uh, for a number of different reasons. Um, it does appear to me, though, that he was writing before the temple was destroyed. He does not mention anything about the the temple being destroyed, yet he talks about the old covenant fading away. Uh, I, th- I think it would be unlikely he would have neglected that great event if if he was writing after that. So although we know he had to have written before 96 A.D. because Clement quoted it, I think it's very likely it was before 70 A.D. Um, and he's writing, but I don't think he's writing to Jews in in Judea. He, he's um, in the first place. All of his quotations from the Old Testament are from the Septuagint. Now, sometimes Paul will quote from the Septuagint, but Paul often would would translate directly from the Hebrew, and, and it just seems to me to be a a bit of a stretch to think that someone is going to try to appeal to Aramaic-speaking Jews who know Hebrew and try to appeal to them by by quoting from a Greek translation, which in some cases the Greek translation differed quite a bit from the Hebrew. Um, So I think it's more likely that he's writing to a group of Hebrew Christians in some other place. And that's as far as as we can go. I, I have no idea where that other place is. Uh, except I know it's not in, in Rome because at the end of the book he lets you know that he's writing from Italy. So it's somewhere else. Um, but the he, they've been Christians for a long time. And they seem to be getting discouraged and losing their first love, as, as Jesus put it when He wrote to the Ephesians in, in the book of Revelation. Um, they, they're... Um, the fire is getting dim. And so this this man who who apparently had been he was well known with to to this group. In fact, he was a part of that group. He, at the end of the chapter at the end of the book he talks about well, by your prayers I'll be restored to you quickly. And that again is not something that that I would expect to hear from Paul because there was no one church that Paul belonged to or that he expected to be restored to. But this writer apparently had spent a lot of time with these brethren and he he considered himself part of their group. But now he's in Italy, probably Rome. And he hopes to be restored to them quickly. Um, but he's worried about them for just from the fact that, that over the years they've lost their the, that edge they had when they first became Christians and, they, and they've, they're losing... Um, 
their zeal for, for the Lord. And in fact, there, there's a danger there that they'll, they'll just give up entirely on, on being a Christian. So he, he's writing to them to show that what they have is much better than what they had before Christ came along. It, when, when you go back to their, their Jewish ancestry, the culture that they grew up with, um, it, it, was, it was great, it was, you know, it was God-given, but what they have in Jesus is much greater. And so, in order to prove that, he quotes from the Old Testament many, many times. And so, the, the, this, is the, this, this book is the kind of book that you really cannot study until after you have a picture of the whole Bible. And that's why it's very helpful that we've gone through the whole Bible. We're, of course, approaching the end of our two-year program on that. Um, so that you can understand where the book of Psalms fits uh, in, in the in the overall history of things, so he's quoting from from a psalm. Uh, you are my son today; I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him; he shall be a son to me. So he's showing them that back a thousand years before Jesus was born, it was prophesied that the Messiah was going to be God's son. And so this isn't just something that you know the, the apostles just kind of made up to try to make make their, their uh, teacher sound better. It had been predicted for ages. And so even back then, when, when David the psalmist was writing, God was showing the people that there was something better to come. And that's the whole story of the book of Hebrews. So in this one, he's, he's, in, in this verse, he's using it to show that, he, that Jesus is better than angels. Later on, he'll show that he's better than other things. And then in verse 10... He quotes another scripture from, again from the Psalms. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Now, this is very interesting. If you were reading that psalm back, you know, in the days of, of you know, the Old Testament, and you read, "You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands," who would you think the person is talking about when he says, "You, Lord"? God. That's right. God the Father. But the Hebrew writer, without any embarrassment at all, quotes it as applying to Jesus. Now what does that tell you his view of Jesus is? Equal to God. That's exactly right. Now we find that same teaching in some of Paul's writings, Colossians for example. But there are still there's some religions today that consider themselves followers of Christ who don't believe that. And uh, and a verse like this, I think, is very important. Of course, in order to appreciate a verse like this, you have to have an understanding of the whole Bible, which <laughs> makes it kind of hard when you're dealing with people that, that that don't know a lot and all they know is just little proof texts. But this is a for those who understand the whole Bible, this kind of a quotation is very powerful to understand that Jesus is God. All right, so we'll go on. Let me see if I can get that in focus better. All right, chapter 2 has two different topics. Um, Beware of drifting away and Jesus became flesh for us. Um, One of the things that's, that's interesting about the book of Hebrews is he'll often do these little side trips which 
are kind of if you were reading this in a magazine it'd be one of those little sidebars you know you read over there and 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 you'll have these little sidebars sometimes as long as a whole chapter um, so and the sidebars are almost always on the same subject that is beware folks you need to shape up so the primary magazine article is all about Jesus is greater than everything they had in the Old Testament. And these little sidebars would say, here's another reason why you, you need to beware and shape up. Here's a, here's a reason why you need to beware and shape up. So the first four verses are, are, are one of these little sidebars. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. That's an interesting word, drift. Um, it's not like they're deliberately walking away from it. It's just, it's like that you know they're paddling a canoe up the up the river and the river's not moving very fast and they just kind of sit there and fold their arms and so they slowly drift away and and that's what he wants them to be to beware of. Um, he says, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, what's the word spoken through angels? Prophecies. Yeah, that's the Old Testament. If that was unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? See, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. The Old Testament was lesser. Jesus' Jesus' revelation is greater. But if in the Old Testament, when you neglected it, there was a punishment that followed, how much more will that be true with the greater revelation? Alright, then the second part is Jesus became flesh for us. And in in verse 6, he says, For one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you were concerned about him? Where is that quoted from? Yeah, that's from Psalm 8. One of the really great psalms. Um, And so he says, um, in verse 8, he's still quoting from that chapter, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. This, the psalmist was just looking back to Genesis chapter one, when you know God told, when you know let us make man in our image, and, and He told him to rule over His creation. Everything in the creation is under the feet of humans. So, the Hebrew writer makes a comment. He says, "For in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him." But now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. We don't. What what is there in this whole creation that is not subjected to humans? Linda? Death. (laughs) That's the one. That's the big enemy. Death. Now when God made this statement in Genesis chapter 1, there was no death. So everything in His creation really was subject to humans. But now, the Hebrew writer is making a conclusion and um, I can't spend a lot of time on this in just a survey, but I, I, I want to observe that we need to learn how the New Testament writers make use of the Old Testament because it's very appropriate for us to do the same thing. Um, it's not... I understand that the Hebrew writer was being guided by the Holy Spirit as, as were all the writers of the New Testament. But I also understand that they did not make arguments that we could not make ourselves given the same information they had. And the information they had was the whole Old Testament and then what they knew of Jesus from the New Testament. We have that same thing. 
We can make these same kinds of arguments. Um, but it requires a real understanding of the Bible. You can't just go and, and cherry-pick and just grab little things. The, the, this argument is a very deep argument. It's one that I'm sure the, the author has thought a lot about. But the solution to the problem is in verse 9. See, we have this problem that although God said everything subject to you, we don't see it. But, he says, we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. So, we don't see everything subject to man, but now we see one who has already begun to conquer that, that last enemy. The, the battle's not going to be completely over until He comes again. But He's already shown us that He's done the hard work for it. And, and we will ultimately have all things under our feet, just like um, the psalmist said back in Psalm 8. Yeah, John. In Psalm 8, it, the, uh, in my translation, and it does have a translator's note, though it's made him a little lower than God, and the translator's note says uh, Elohim, which could also be angels. So. Yes. Yeah, this is one of the things, and I'm hoping to spend a little bit more time on this when we go in detail, but because the Hebrew writer always uses the Septuagint, um, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, uh, there's times when his, his translation differs from what we have directly out of the Hebrew. It was not a perfect translation. I don't think the Septuagint translation was inspired. Um, but to the fact that an inspired writer could use a translation which was inferior like that, to me, is an indication that God watches over His Word. And the same is true today. That, that's one of the reasons why I, I don't believe it's right for us to say it is a sin for you to use this translation. He, he, even the very worst translation I've ever found, and there certainly are some very bad ones, the very worst translation I've ever found, if a person followed it, they would be saved. It teaches what a person needs to do to be pleasing to God. Now, it's not the one I would want to use for my you know, everyday reading. I, I, I would, if I have a choice, I'll, I'll use a more accurate translation. But the fact that a writer could use Septuagint and learn truth from God, even though probably the writer here doesn't know Hebrew and doesn't have the ability to go back to the original Hebrew, he can use a translation and get, and get what he needs out of it, is an indication that anyone who has a copy of the Bible, no matter how poorly translated it was, can, can be pleasing to God. He can learn what he needs to know and, and he can obey God. But we'll, we'll have to look more into some of those differences. And some of them are, are a bit of a challenge, John, when we get into it. Um, Alright, other questions? Alright, I'm going to have to move on a little bit faster, I'm afraid. Um, verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who have the power of death, that is, the devil. Um, Alright, so then the next section is Christ's superiority over Moses. We finished the angel part, and now He's superior to Moses. And then we have another one of these little sidebars here. Um, in... Um, in verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, 
for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as what? A son over his house. So, so Moses is in the house, but he's a servant. Jesus is the son of the owner of the house. So Jesus obviously is, is, is greater than Moses. You see, now the Hebrew writer is picking things that the, that the Jews he's writing to, Jewish Christians, would have considered to be the, the very best that you could get in the Old Testament. Wow, you know, our word, we have revelations from angels. We got the law from Moses. And, and one by one, the Hebrew writer says, yeah, the son's greater than angels. The son's greater than Moses. Um, now, in verse seven, he, this is one, this is another one of these sidebars. Um, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke Me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. And He's going to deal with this for a whole chapter. In fact, the rest of chapter three and all of chapter four, the danger of behaving like the Jews did in the wilderness. When they made trial. And so in verse 11, this is still quoting from the psalm, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so he says, take care, brethren, that, that there be not in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He shows how in the Old Testament, he brought all those hundreds of thousands of people out of slavery in Egypt, but all but two of them fell away because of unbelief. And so that's a warning to us. We, we need to be careful we don't fall away because of unbelief. So at the end of, verse, of the chapter, verse 19, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And so in chapter 4, be diligent to enter God's rest. Still part of the same sidebar. I was missing it doesn't go through the whole chapter. It goes through the first 13 verses. Um, Let's see. Um, in verse 2, we indeed have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by what? Faith. Faith in those who heard, yes. So verse 11, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Alright, then... The next section, starting in verse 14, is Christ's superiority over the Aaronic priesthood. Aaron being the very first high priest. So in verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now what's the difference between that and Aaron? Before he had a sin and he had to, to make sacrifices. Yeah, he had been tempted to all things like as we are, but not without sin. <laughs> that was that was the issue. Um, so chapter five continues the same topic. Christ is the perfect high priest. In verse five, so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him. You are my son today I have begotten you, just as he says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So again, he's quoting from Old Testament prophecies. These are still in the book of Psalms. Showing that Christ was appointed to be high priest. 
He didn't just take it upon Himself. He didn't just say, hey, I think I'd like to be a high priest. Why don't you all guys make me a high priest? No, it, God made him high priest. Just like God made Aaron high priest. Um, so at least at this point, he's equal to Aaron. But in fact, he had... Later on we'll find out there's one more thing because um, he, was, he was made high priest by an oath, but I don't think that's in this passage. Um, but in verse 8, it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. In spite of his very high position, he had to go through the same experience that you and I go through and learn what it means to obey God. That doesn't mean that he was disobedient at the beginning, but he hadn't had the experience of what it costs to obey. Now, then we have another sidebar in verse 11. <laughs> Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Uh, he just mentioned Melchizedek in verse 10 and, and says it's going to be tough for me to explain about Melchizedek because he says, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So whoever this group was, they hadn't grown. They they should they should have been teachers, and they they just had not done the growing. And so when he mentions Melchizedek, they're kind of saying, uh, "Duh, you know what? Well, what about him?" And and he's going to go into some pretty deep things here, and and he's really concerned about it. He he'll get back to it. He he's not going to drop the subject just because they were dull of hearing, but he's going to go through chapter six. Uh, Beware of falling away. Um, so verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have made, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, would you say people that follow that, that fill that category are saved people? <laughs> I don't think there's a way in the world you can say they're not saved. Clearly these people are saved. And then verse 6, and then have fallen away. Um, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. It is possible for a Christian to fall away. And, but more than that, it's worse. It's worse for a Christian to fall away than never to have been saved in the first place. Because a person who's never been saved, he has a chance of getting saved. But what does the Hebrew writer say about the person who falls away? It's impossible. You're not going to get him back. I don't think he's saying, you know, when we withdraw from someone, we, you know, we, we just we, we just write them off, or you know, they can never come back again. But by and large, a person that's had all these benefits and just turned their back on them will never come back. Um, God won't let them come back because they're crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh. They're they're deliberately rejecting it. It, well, Paul, Paul, in Second Timothy one, he talked about how he had been a blasphemer and persecutor and all terrible things. But he says God had mercy on me. Why? Because he did it in ignorance. That's right. And but when a Christian turns his back on on the Lord, it's not in ignorance. So the Hebrew writer is making this point just as a warning to us. You know, don't think you can just kind of you know go in and out out of the church as you please. Um, God's going to hold us accountable. We 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 know a lot more. All right. Um, 
Verse 9, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation though we are speaking in this way. So he's encouraging them, even though warning them pretty, pretty strongly. So in verse 13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. So this is still in the, in the category of trying to encourage them not to fall away. So he says, God made an oath to Abraham. He swore by himself that he would make of his seed, he, he, he would bless all nations. We who are Christians are the recipients of that blessing. And so in verse 18, so by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So understand, what we have is, is guaranteed by God. Don't, don't give it up. So then at the very end, he goes back, he, 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 he segues back into Melchizedek here when he mentions that we have a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so in chapter 7, the, the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than that of Aaron. And in this chapter, the, the Hebrew writer goes to the 110th Psalm, which is where, where he's quoting from, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so then he, that one mention of Melchizedek is the only one I know of in the Old Testament outside of the book of Genesis. So he goes back to Genesis to see, well, let's see what we can learn about this guy. If, if, if the Messiah, the Christ, is going to be an, a priest of the order of Melchizedek, what does that mean? So he goes back to the book of Genesis and you learn several things. You learn one, well, here was a man who was both king and priest. In the Old Testament, God did not allow the kings of Israel to also be priests, or vice versa. Occasionally they tried it, and one guy got struck with leprosy for trying to be a priest as well as a king. But here was Melchizedek, he was both. Well then, the Hebrew writer looks at the meaning of his name. He translates the meaning of his name, and it means um, king of righteousness. Wow, that, that fits with Jesus, doesn't it? <laughs> well, and then he was king of what city? Salem. Salem. Well, Salem means peace. So he's king of peace as well. King of righteousness and king of peace. And then in, your, in the story, now this is, he's drawing, he's drawing conclusions from the story in Genesis. He's not telling us things we don't know about Melchizedek. When he says without father, without mother, without genealogy, I'm quite convinced that he did have parents. He did have a genealogy. But God inspired Moses to write the story in such a way that he just appears there. Bam! You have no history of him, no before, no after. Um, he, he talks about how he, he remains... He, he's just always a king. As far as the story of Genesis is, he's always a king. Because you only have him in that one chapter. But the point, but he is a foreshadowing of the Messiah, being a king and a priest, being someone who has no ancestry listed in the scriptures, and someone who has no end of his life listed in the scriptures. He 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 forms a good shadow of of, of the of the future. I don't I don't think he lived eternally. I don't think if you went walked around, you could find Melchizedek on earth. Some some. In a place today, I'm sure he died, but the Holy Spirit inspired Moses not to mention anything about his death because he was his story was going to stand as um, a type 
of, of Christ. And that's the point in, uh, in chapter 7. Um, well, I'll move on. Christ's superior sacrifice, chapter 8. Um, verse 6, But now He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as He is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And so this chapter talks about how it goes back to Jeremiah, where Jeremiah prophesies of this this covenant he's going to make with his people in in days to come. And so the Hebrew writer is drawing some conclusions. Says if God's talking about a new covenant he's going to make, then the first covenant must be obsolete. And so that's what he says at the end of the chapter. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So chapter 9, we look at the true tabernacle. And so he, he, he gives us kind of a brief introduction to what the tabernacle was like and um, what, what you learn from that that um, the way into, the, into heaven wasn't yet made evident. Verse 11 then, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the great and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. The tabernacle, the most holy place that Christ went into is heaven itself, which is what the, that room in the tent called the tabernacle represented in the Old Testament. So, which would you want? The one that was foreshadowing the future or the one where your high priest goes into actual heaven? <laughs> that, that's the point that he's, he wants these people to get. And his one sacrifice is sufficient in chapter 10. Um, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. In verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Um, so then, just jumping down to verse 10, by this will, the will of, of, God, of Jesus, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So, as opposed to sacrifices that are offered every day, we have one sacrifice that did everything. That's far greater. Now, in verse 19, he, he, we start a section called Beware of Turning Away. I don't know if this would be considered a sidebar because... Really, he's done. He's done with the, the the point he's been trying to make uh, that Christ is superior to things in the Old Testament. So now he turns to, um, therefore, brethren, verse nineteen. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let's let's do it. He says, and we and verse twenty four. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as the habit of some. Um, so again, encouraging, putting a practical side on this. If, if Christ is that much better than what we had back then, we ought to give that much more devotion to Him. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Very similar to what He said earlier um, in one of those sidebars. Verse 31, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of, of the living God. 
Verse 32, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. And he talks about how you know they had their, their possessions taken away by persecution. Um, but they rejoiced. They, they, didn't, they didn't give up. Um, so in verse 39, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the, to the preserving of the soul. Now what word at that in that verse is his segue into the next chapter? Faith. Yes, we have faith. So the next chapter. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. And this this is one of the really great chapters in, in the whole Bible. He goes through different people, you know, Abel and, and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses and just on and on showing in each of their lives what was it that made the difference? Faith. It was faith. That's right. None of these people were perfect. And some of them were, were very imperfect. I mean, he even mentioned Samson in verse 32. Um, very imperfect person. But faith was the center of, of his life. And it's what allowed his life to make a difference. And so finally, in verse 39... All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. What was promised was Christ and and the kingdom that we are now in. And so all those guys lived before that time, and yet their lives are so great. Just amazing things they did, each each one different, of course, but each one doing these amazing things because of faith. So, in um, whoops, sorry, this outline shows us a plea for persevering faith. So, in um, in chapter twelve, run with endurance. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The witnesses of the people in chapter eleven. He's talking about each one of those men has testified to the quality of faith. He's given his testimony by living it that faith is what we need to have. And if we have so many people all around us saying, faith, 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 the Hebrew writer says, let's run with endurance. <laughs> let's have faith. Um, in verse 4, you have not re- yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now that's one of the verses that this reason why I don't think he was writing to this to Jerusalem that they had they had had a number of their members killed uh, for the because they were Christians. Who was the first that you can recall? Stephen, yeah, Stephen, and then later on there was James. Um, and depending on when this letter was written, there was also James, the brother of Jesus, who who was um, who was murdered shortly before. Um, the, the events that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem. So I don't think I don't think he's writing to the people of Judea. They had resisted the shedding of blood. Wherever he's writing to, they had persecution. They had had their possessions taken away. They had had people put in prison, but they hadn't had anyone killed. So they hadn't. So I think that's what he means there in verse four. Um, then he starts talking about discipline. In verse seven, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And so, 
All the things they're suffering, he's saying, this is God training you with discipline. He says in verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So it's a, little, a different way of looking at the, the sufferings of this life that, that God is actually um, benefiting us. Just like parents have to discipline their children and the children don't like it at the time. But if the parents didn't do it, it would be disaster for the children. And so it would be for us if God didn't, have, didn't uh, discipline us. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Um, verse 14, Pursue with all, peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. What is sanctification? Set Being set apart as special. Another word closely related to it is holy. Yes, being holy. Um, and then verse 18, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. What mountain is he referring to here? Mount Sinai. And, and, and so he, he goes through this description of how terrified everyone was. Even Moses was terrified. You, um, but you've come in verse 24 to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and of the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So see to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those who did not if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. So we keep coming back to this theme: beware of falling away. It's a, a terrifying thing. I mean, we don't want to be one of these unbelievers out in the world on the day of judgment. But there's one, there's something worse than being one of them, and that is being a believer who has turned his back upon God. Uh, and that's the warning that the Hebrew writer is giving here. Okay, then we have our outline calls this the conclusion. I've called it exhortations. Um, Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Can you name anybody like that? To entertain angels without knowing it? Abraham did, yes. Verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. <coughs> Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. And finally in verse 22, but I urge you brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. And um, when I when I deal with the book in more detail, we'll talk about Timothy and some of the things we can learn from that. Any last thoughts or questions? All right, I appreciate everyone's help. <clears throat>